The Bible says this about Jesus. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is the light, and Jesus shines in the darkness, and Jesus is the victor, because the darkness does not overcome Jesus, who is the light. Dot, 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 despite appearances. What I just read was from the first chapter of the Gospel of Jesus according to John. Jesus is the light. He is the light that brings life. He is victorious, because even though He's shining in the darkness, the darkness does not overcome Him. And then we keep reading through the Gospel narrative, and it looks an awful lot like, at times, the darkness overcomes Him. This morning we're going to be looking at the 18th chapter of the Gospel of Jesus according to John, and it looks a lot like, and is going to look a lot more like, The darkness wins, that sin wins, that sinners win against Jesus. But I promise you, even this morning, we will see that even in the dark side of things, on purpose and deliberately, Jesus does things to remind you and to remind me that the darkness does not overcome, that Jesus is the victor. So John 18 is our text for this morning. If you haven't already turned there, I'd invite you to do that. It's the the arrest account of Jesus. We're now at the very end. He's going to the cross and it's imminent that He die. Imminent that He be crucified. And it's the time of the Passover, which is important. I've mentioned that when we've looked at Passover before in John's Gospel account. Passover, if you, for boys and girls who are here, younger people, maybe even for us older people... Passover would have been your favorite holiday. If Christmas is your favorite now, Christmas Eve or whatever it might be, because it's exciting, because family comes to visit, because there are gifts, because it's exciting, because there are more people around, because there's great food, there's great festivities. Well, if you were living at this time and you're a Jew, a boy or a girl, probably a mom or a dad, Passover is the best. Passover is what you look forward to all year long. Passover is is the number one festivity in the Jewish calendar at the time. It's when Josephus, the the Jewish writer, says uh, Jerusalem would have swollen or swelled. I don't know which one it is. But Jerusalem would have been overflowing with people. As many as three million people. So now we can't even hold these people within the city because everyone wants to come to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. To celebrate what God did in the Exodus. To celebrate how how God, via the angel of death, did not give even the Israelites what they deserved. That He didn't bring death and condemnation to their families, but because of the blood shed... He passed over. It's celebrating that. It's celebrating salvation. But it was never intended, even the Old Testament looks forward, never intended to be the end game. 
It was never intended to be the ultimate. It was, it was a shadow of things to come. But by now the people, not entirely, but by and large, had come to love the shadow so much that they weren't even looking for the substance. They weren't even looking for the ultimate. They weren't even looking for the Passover lamb. And the New Testament says that's Jesus. So things were backward. Things were misguided. Things were upside down to the point where even the leaders who represent the people will oppose Jesus and arrest Him and crucify Him. It's all about shadow love, which becomes rather perverse if you think about it. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and begin this morning. We're going to look at the first 18 verses of this horrific ordeal, but I think you'll be able to be encouraged along the way. Let's look now at the opening verse. When Jesus had spoken these words, probably chapter 14 to 17, upper room, uh, his prayer in John 17, when he'd spoken his words about his departure, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, that's the Garden of Gethsemane, which he and his disciples entered. I won't keep stopping like this as often, but just at least to get the picture for now. Some of you have pictured this because you've been there or have you looked it up on, on Google Earth or something. They've been in the upper room and now they cross the Kidron Valley, the brook Kidron. And so they've gone across the valley away from the temple side of things. And now they're in the garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, an olive garden. So if you were to try to sort this out in your mind, and whenever I'm in Israel, I think it's, it's bigger than I think, and it's smaller than I think, and I'm not postmodern. There's a sense that it feels big and grand. But there's a sense in which it doesn't feel that big because you can see so much from this area. So if you are on the right side, or excuse me, if, if, I don't know my directions in this building, but we'll do it this way. Temple here, north side of the temple, east side of the temple, then you've got the Kidron Valley, and then you have the Mount of Olives. And the valley goes like this, okay? So, Craig, you can be Mount of Olives. <laughs> so, temple structure here, they're going to go across the valley, down to the Garden of Gethsemane, but the backdrop is going to be Mount of Olives, okay? It's all rather compact and all rather small, even though... It's grand, but you can see things. It would be like us looking from the roof of our building across the interstate, especially if the interstate was lowered, if 680 was lowered, and looking at all those houses over there. But it's the temple where the action is, where sacrifice of atonement happens, where all the festivities are, with all of the priests and all of the things happening. This is exciting. This is stimulating. This is overwhelming. It's Passover celebrating the, the faithfulness of God. And we're going to see apparently this garden, we're going to see in our text, is familiar. So reading between the lines, but not very much, we know it's familiar to Jesus and His disciples. They must have known who owned it. Perhaps it was where they went whenever they would go to Jerusalem for Passover. Hard to find a place to stay. You want to know someone who has property or a place to stay. And they apparently, as we'll see, frequented, frequented did, that's almost right, this garden. It's their getaway place. 
some solitude, a place where you can pray, a place where you can get away from all of the hype, all of the festivities, but so close to, to, to the center of everything, which would be the temple. Going to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now before we go to verse 2, there's something strangely missing. What we don't have is the account of Jesus suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not in John's Gospel account. Doesn't mean it's not important. But John doesn't mention it. Now, just as a quick aside, I I can't resist, though, and say, if you can know what the gospel is, the gospel of Jesus Christ, enough for eternal life by reading John, and I think you can, then we know that Mormonism isn't right. Because, and I will quote one Mormon scholar, Robert J. Matthews, It was in the Garden of Gethsemane on the slopes of the Mount of Olives that Jesus made His perfect atonement by the shedding of His blood more so than on the cross. Wow. I have a pretty good Mormon friend. I can't wait to ask him about that. And I will. Now, I want to be careful and and walk this line carefully. Gethsemane is vital and important, and Jesus' suffering there is vital and important. I'm not trying to take away from it. John's Gospel account isn't trying to take away from it. But most certainly, it's not the thing where atonement happens. He's got to go to the cross. Verse 2. Now Judas who betrayed him. Think darkness. Also knew the place. See, this is familiar, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Now think about this, right? Think about the narrative. They're in the Garden of Gethsemane because that's where they ordinarily went. And so Judas knows that that's probably where they are. Please notice the deliberateness of this and what's happening here. And if you've been reading John chapters 1 to 17, this isn't a shocker to you. Jesus goes where they would normally go. Because Jesus isn't trying to escape the cross. Remember in chapter 2, He talked about to His mother, My hour has not yet come. But it's, it's been all about the hour coming. And now the hour is here, right? His face has been set toward Jerusalem, and He's there now, and this is going to be the hour. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus, according to plan, right? That's fresh in my mind from chapter 17. According to plan, goes to where He will be found. Verse 3, so Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. The band of soldiers, if you want to woodenly literalize this, and I don't think it's meant to be taken that way, that the word that he uses there can be used, it's often used for, for, for a thousand troops. 
And I just got tired of reading different opinions about how many there were, because we don't know how many there were. But, but it's not just two, okay? There's a, there's a significant group of militants there. This is, this is a big deal, in other words. Look, look, at, look at the group of people that he brings there. There's the band of soldiers, officers from the chief priests, so that would be like temple guard. So we've got the, 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 the secular uh, group there. We've got the, the sacred group of officers. And the Pharisees, uh, or excuse me, the, uh, the officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. And they've got lanterns and torches and weapons. They're ready for the fight, right? They're ready to chase Jesus who knows the area. They're ready to search every nook and cranny or whatever is necessary. They're ready for battle, for fighting. This zealot sent there by the religious leaders. Now, maybe we should just pause there for a moment and come up for breath and say, let's observe for sure that Jesus is doing what's been purposed and planned because He came here to seek and save the lost. This is not a bad day for Jesus because His plans fell through. It's a bad day for Jesus because He's going to be sinned against, but things are happening according to plan, and that matters to you and that matters to me because we have a successful Savior who came here and did everything on our behalf so that we could know God and who's working everything even now so that we will one day meet God and He won't be against us. In charge, in control, trustworthy, according to plan. Let's also observe that people who are part of the right religion The Jews can be terribly amiss to the point where they, they, they want to crucify the Savior. So the association with the right religion doesn't guarantee anything and sometimes it just is a, it, 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 there's, there's terrible things associated. Then let's think about Judas. Judas has led them there. Darkness. He's been one of the twelve. Darkness. Judas, think about Judas. Judas has tasted the fish. Judas is eyewitness to miracles. Judas has been an eyewitness to these things. People don't reject Christ because they haven't had enough objectivity. And we need to remember that. It's not about evidences ultimately in the end. He had all the evidences. His human heart is dark and God has to do something to change the human heart. Well, let's keep moving now. Verse 4, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to Him, see, I haven't just been blowing smoke saying that kind of stuff, knowing all that would happen to Him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? I love it. I love it because this is my Savior, right? We sing sometimes about how He had us on His mind and, and sometimes we think, oh, that's just kind of a nice sentiment. No, actually, He came to seek and save. This is all about a, a salvation accomplishment. So Jesus, however many of them there were, 
You know, it wasn't like they were, you know, doing, you know... I mean, this is a military group. Military garb with lanterns and with weapons. And you could hear them coming, no doubt. They didn't have triple thick insulation on the walls. It's a garden. Yeah, it could have a wall around it. But this is not, you know, hermetically sealed. So you'd hear them coming. It's no small thing. And what does Jesus do? He cowers in the background and creates a diversion and sneaks out the back. No, because this is all on purpose. This is the hour, right? And I want to keep reminding you of that as John's reminding us in different ways, subtly and not so subtly, because this is the Savior we trust in now, even in bad circumstances. What does Jesus do? Jesus meets them. He comes forward, verse 4, and said to them, Whom do you seek? I mean, they, they wasted their time lighting their lanterns and bringing weapons. This is the Jesus who gives Himself, Ephesians 5. This is the Jesus, John 10, who lays His life down for the sheep. This is the Jesus who no one will take His life from Him. He is in charge. And what we're going to see now is, before they arrest Jesus, Jesus arrests them. And it's cool. His love for His sheep in action. How about verse 5? They answered Him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am. It doesn't say I am He, by the way. Could be translated that way, but for good reason we're going to see it. And the way John uses it from John chapter 8. Let's just have it be, I am. Judas, who betrayed Him, was standing with them. Verse 6, when Jesus said to them, I am. They drew back and fell to the ground. Told you it was cool. Before they arrest him, he arrests them. It, don't, don't think Keystone cops. Don't think circus clown police officers. Don't think bumbling idiots. Think trained military professionals. And when Jesus says, I am, they fall down. I don't really know the ins and outs. Was it, was it because of his voice? I mean, was it, did, did, by saying that, did he, did he give them a glimpse of his glory and his greatness? I mean, apparently so in some way or another. When he uses the great name of God from Exodus, remember in John chapter 8 when he says, before Abraham was, I am, and the Jews take stones to stone him because they know he committed blasphemy if he's a mere human being. And here, who do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. I am. <sighs> they all fall down. Pretty, pretty wild. Using a bit of sarcasm, the next thing I have in my notes is, so they all repented, right? Think about it, though. 
It was something supernatural, whether it's a glimpse of his glory or however it is, it's the voice. I don't know exactly, but something extraordinary happens. They fall down and they don't repent. Another reminder, the unbelief and hostility is not because they don't somehow experience something supernatural. It's not true when people say it now. It's not true then. They experience something supernatural and they're just going to be right back at him. God has to change people's hearts. I like John chapter 3 verse 19 as a good cross-reference from Jesus. Jesus said this, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Don't confuse me with the facts. I know what I believe. Right? Let's go to verse 7. I kind of don't want to. I want to keep talking about this. Verse 7. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, I think these are the four important words in this section, let these men go. And I want to point out to you, in case you're not really thinking about it or just casually observing, let these men go. Active imperative from the I am. He's not bartering. He's not bargaining. He's not pleading. He's in command mode and in charge. And he says, these men you let go. And they will. And here's why. How about verse 9? This was to fulfill the word that He had spoken of those whom you gave Me. I have lost not one. Oh, chapter 17. He's going to give His life for them. Please do notice, He says, I am three times. He's not doing subterfuge. He's not doing... um, you know, head fakes. He's not being elusive. He's not changing the subject. He's answering. He's answering truthfully. He's answering directly. And it will lead to bad things happening for him. Because it's his hour. And he's doing what he does out of love for those who belong to him in the here text. First century. And in light of his prayer from John 17, and he's doing what he does for those of us who are in the here text. (laughs) Remember in John 17, he prays for all believers of every era to be safe. And that would include us. And that's not just pie in the sky. He's doing what He's doing because He's a great Savior. He's doing what He's doing because He loves us. He's doing what He's doing because He's on mission, if you will. And He's a successful missionary. Okay, how about verse 10? Then Simon Peter, having a sword, a smaller sword or a dagger based upon the word that he uses, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. You know what I say to that? That is splendid. That is awesome. 
That is fantastic. Now, we love to beat up on Peter. And, and sometimes rightfully so. But how about this? How about let's just love Peter for a minute. What does Peter do? Well, think about it. Peter, feel, Peter the fisherman feels like a superhero. Right? After all, he's with Jesus. And Jesus has made huge promises to him, right? About building his church, right? And, and here is Peter. And he just watched Jesus say, I am, and they all fell down. You know? And by now, if I'm Peter, I'm feeling pretty good about myself. Right? Invincible. Unstoppable. Misdirected, misinformed, sure, but I mean, and then let's also, let's admire that and let's admire the, the, the guy's love. This man loves Jesus. Right? He absolutely loves Jesus. And so what does he do? He gets out his surgeon's scalpel and says, I'm going to trim off your earlobe, because that's the word that's used. That's a dumb commentary if that's what you read in a commentary. The better commentaries would say nobody would aim for an earlobe. They'd go for the throat, right? Thankfully for Malchus, he ducked or dodged or bobbed or something and got his earlobe cut off. Luke's account says, then Jesus heals his ear. And to be sarcastic again, everyone watches that incident and watches it happen. And Jesus fixes his ear and gives him a new ear by touching him. And so they all repented and believed because they wanted to see a miracle. I know I'm just kind of strumming that same string, but we think, and our unbeliever friends tell us, we would believe if you just. Oh, no, you didn't. Right? Oh, no, you wouldn't. That's not what we get from the gospel accounts. Information is vital. Objectivity is vital. History is vital, but that does not automatically change people. Verse 11. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? If you know the Bible, if you've been reading the Bible very long at all, you know cup is symbolic in the Old Testament for containing something. We all know that. But oftentimes it's used like in Isaiah 51 for, for, for judgment, for condemnation. It's this metaphor of pouring out of something. And sometimes it's used in the Old Testament to, for pouring out judgment, for pouring out wrath, death. And here is Peter, meaning well-meaning, well and he wants to save Jesus from wrath. He wants to save him from temporary wrath, right? But Jesus has to remind him that he's on mission, on purpose. This is why I'm here. This isn't bad luck. I'm here to take the cup of my Father. This is according to plan. Isaiah 51.22, if you want to look it up later. And Luke 22, verse 51 is where Jesus heals the man's ear and says to, to Peter, no more of this. Okay, how about verse 12? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Verse 13, 
First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, or at that time. So we have putrid unity of the Jews and the Romans, and even different kinds of Jews who hated each other. Putrid unity together, then they take him to Annas for an unofficial trial, but the people at the time, from what we read, still viewed Annas as the major power broker, right? He's the patriarch. He's still in charge. And then they're going to take him to his son-in-law, Caiaphas, afterward. Got all kinds of historic things about Annas and Caiaphas. Probably not necessary for our conversation now. Maybe just one thing before I skipped about three paragraphs. Let's go to this. The family is mentioned several times in later Jewish writings. It was noted not only for its great size, wealth, and power, but also for its greed. The idea is, Annas, you've got got to go see the Godfather. Maybe I should say, I don't know. Because someday you may need a favor. That day may never come, but if... Never mind. I wonder how many of you got that. (laughs) Everyone over a certain age. We get the idea, though. Annas, then Caiaphas for the official evaluation. How about verse 14? It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. We won't take the time to go there, but you could write down John 11, verses 48 to 53, and that is when, in fact, Caiaphas said regarding Jesus to his fellow Jews that they should kill him, the one man, for the people. And he didn't even realize what he was saying. But it's prefiguring. It's, it's real. It's going to be substitutionary atonement. The one is going to die for the many. In fact, it says there in that text that we're not turning to. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. I like going back there because we see in John's Gospel account all the pieces being fit together. He's not only going to die for the Jews, he's going to die for those scattered abroad, the Gentiles too. He's going to be the Savior of the world. Even the unbelieving high priest prophesies. Hmm. Okay, verse 15. We're about wrapping, wrapping things up. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. That's probably John, because he typically uses that kind of verbiage when he's talking about himself. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, 
But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, again John, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. He's going to say it again and again, right? I am not. Interesting, the, the contrast, right? I am, I am, I am. I am not, I am not. He's going to say it again. I am not. Three denials. No doubt it's intentional. That's the first thing I noticed when I was reading my Bible and just busy scratching things and noticing connections. And it's, yeah, Jesus affirming, affirming, affirming. And it's going to lead to his condemnation. And Peter trying to save his neck, denying, denying, denying. It's good for us to remember that's why we trust not in Bible heroes. It's why we don't trust in ourselves. We trust in Christ who says what is true and goes to the cross, therefore, because he says what's true. Maybe one more contrast to end on, and that would be the contrast between Peter and Judas. That's an interesting one, and maybe we'll end on that this morning. If you look at their lives and their families, if anything, you'd say Judas is the faithful one. Rights, privileges, family, honor, name. They must have trusted him. They gave him the money. Peter, not so much. But Peter is the one who... Oh, wait a second. Peter denies Jesus too. Hmm. But Peter is the one who will come out on the other end as a believer persevering, following Christ, even at great expense. And I just want to remind you that what separates Judas from Peter, there are other things. But I would suggest to you that the big thing, and I'm not talking about what happens in eternity past because that's relevant too, but we're not talking about that this morning. That was last week. The big thing that separates Peter from Judas is Jesus. And here's what I mean. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. Sounds like Judas. But Jesus is talking to Peter. And here's what Jesus says. And I want you to be encouraged by these words. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, 
I am ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times. The encouragement, my friends, because we so easily get our eyes in the wrong place, is Jesus praying for him. That's the big distinguishing mark. That Jesus is for him. So in the end, he will persevere. And I remind you even of John 17 that we saw last week and Jesus praying for the immediate disciples and then saying he is praying for everyone who would ever become a disciple. A true disciple. And he distinguishes it from Judas. We are faithful and we continue and we persevere because we're so strong-willed. No. Because we have German last names and they're hard-headed. No. Because of our upbringing. No. Because we go to a good church. No. Because I do my quiet time. No. In the end, like we sang today, the glory will go to God. And the persevering will happen because Jesus claims us as His own and He prays for us as our high priest. That is, no, He is the one who makes all the difference. And we have to remember that. And we're prone to not remembering that. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this morning. Thank You for a a great passage like this to learn from and to consider. And even in some detail, Lord, there's so much more that we haven't seen there. But we're grateful that we can rest in Jesus and not in ourselves. And we're grateful that we have a high priest who is faithful, as Hebrews says, that he always lives to pray for us, that that he always lives to make intercession for us. And if Satan says, look at Pat, he's not perfect, indeed it's true. And yet Jesus claims me as his own, and he claims all believers as his own, and we are grateful for this. May we not be people who boast in ourselves, but may we be people who boast in Christ and who tell others of the good news of trusting in Jesus for redemption. Encourage us this week as we have opportunity even to love others by telling them the truth about Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.